Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. If you have your Bibles with you, I would encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, it will be the primary text that we read. We will cite multiple passages in today's study, but I would encourage you to turn there with us. I do wish to always begin right now by giving a heartfelt shout out to all of our church family members that do continue to self-distance because of the virus. And let us actively, as individuals, reach out to them and encourage them. And I'm sure they're, they're feeling that isolation, just as we all do. You are loved, and we look forward to rejoining with you and them in the very near future. It is difficult to stay connected when you do not see people on a regular basis. And those handshakes and hugs are always missed. So please, if you know of someone who is not connecting at this time, or perhaps you're feeling isolated, give us a call, send us an email, drop us a note, and we will work to do the same. The time in which we do live is not only emotionally draining, but also intellectually confusing. We wish to talk about our time being unprecedented. It is for our own experience, but not for history. Such times as these are part of God reclaiming what is rightfully his through tribulation. And I am confident that at the ending of this tribulation will be the soon return of Jesus. And if you haven't been, I would encourage you to pray for the return of Jesus. He is the answer to all of this. One of the intents of any study is for us to see the connectedness to all of Scripture, to see how all these various dots connect. We believe that the Bible teaches a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. Uh, We say that repeatedly, and we are confident and comfortable with that train of thought. The Bible, for us, forms our worldview. The vision of God and the mission of God define for us our response to everything unfolding around us. The Bible calls the church, calls us, to bring what is uniquely ours into the unbelieving world. We are not, however, to bring what is uniquely theirs, into the church. Our emotions, our hearts are heavy, as we see and hear of all the upheaval that is taking place. And all of this impacts the church in two primary ways. And I wish to address both of those in our present study. For days, Jesse Culkin had no idea that the world as he knew it was shutting down. He was hiking through the snow in the sugar pines alone and without cell phone service, high in the San Bernardino Mountains on the Pacific Crest Trail. It's a 2,600-mile trail that runs through three states on the West Coast. On Tuesday, March 17th, it started to snow, so he walked off the trail and into the town of Big Bear Lake. He checked into the hostel to wait out the storm, turned on his phone, and saw the news. Coronavirus was now a global pandemic. Schools were closing. Movie theaters were shutting down. Restaurants were empty. He checked the Facebook page for the Pacific Crest Trail hikers, and it was a war zone. On one side, hikers who already decided to cancel their upcoming trips. On the other side, hikers adamant about continuing. Each side was loudly 
angrily shaming the other. Culkin felt caught in the middle. As the snow fell softly outside, the wind rattled the windows of the empty hostel. The 33-year-old Australian wondered, should I quit or should I press on? And these are peace-loving hikers having these tensions. This scenario reflects the larger story unfolding each and every day since then and is only going to get worse for the church. I'd like to begin by reading Revelation 12. I'll read the entire chapter and then we will pray. In the book of Revelation, you have repeating cycles and the dominant idea inside of Revelation is giving us a glimpse, as it were, of world history. Revelation keeps repeating this idea that this is what was, this is what is, and this is what will be. And so these are the words we read in Revelation 12, and you may remain seated. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. I believe this is Israel. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth to what I believe to be the Christ child, the woman's seed. Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, the Christ child, the woman's seed, the Messiah, Jesus, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's you and me. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather as your people to enjoy one another's fellowship, to receive that from one another. And Father, this morning we affirm, we confess that this is the word of God. 
And Father, we are now going to honor it. We are going to elevate it. We are going to give it its due by giving it attention. We are going to lean into it and we are going to bend our ear toward it. And Father, may we be aggressive, active listeners. May we hear what you have for us today from this text. So Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to study this. In Jesus' name, amen. The primary idea that I am taking from Revelation 12, and there's much that we could say about the entire book and this, part, this chapter in particular, but I'm wanting us to know how the red dragon, the serpent, is assaulting the seed of the woman. That's us. The seed of the woman are those who believe in the person and work of Jesus, that he is Lord and that God the Father has raised him from the dead. That is what we are dealing with. And we know that we are under attack. Revelation 12 shows us how God's people are always under assault by the seed of the serpent. The other element shows us inside of our text how God does indeed protect his people in the midst of all of this. And that one day God will indeed triumph over his enemies. Justice will prevail as we read in the psalm. I cannot stress this enough. I am speaking to the church. This study is for us as the people of God, as the family of God. I am not speaking to those who do not openly identify as Christians. I am not even speaking to those who identify as Christian but have no affiliation with a local physical church. I am speaking to those who openly identify with Jesus Christ and his church on a local level and who have a general idea of the Bible's storyline or structure. And I am speaking specifically to us as a family of families, to us as a church body, as a community. We are noting the serpent's assault against the woman's offspring. This study has only two primary points. We are being attacked as to our unity and as to the purity of the gospel. Each one of those points has three subpoints. Our primary premise, which helps us understand that we are a unified fellowship in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither bond nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. We are working from unity, not for unity. But that unity is under assault. The serpent is seeking to attack and divide the body of Christ. As well as the purity of the gospel. We have a singular message that we are bringing out into the world that is uniquely ours as a family of families. And that is what we are doing. There's a primary premise from which we work. Then there's a problem. And then what is the biblical solution to this problem. We're going to begin with this idea of the church's unity. What is our primary premise? Well, in Christ, there is no distinction as to standing or identity. John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says that church that is going to be formed out of my person and work is going to be one church. You have heard me stress repeatedly, often, there's only one church in Waukesha County. It has multiple geographical locations, but there is only one church that is equally true globally. That global church has multiple geographical locations, but there is only one church. Amen? I hope I'm not having to force you to say that. Galatians chapter 3, 
Verse 25, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, but now that faith has come, and remember the division that existed in Galatia. Paul writes, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, we would do well to read a multiplicity of verses or passages. Romans chapter 10, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, speaking to Jew and Gentile that there is one new man. Galatians, Ephesians 4, 4, for there is only one body. Colossians 3, 11. All of these stress the idea that you and I, as the people of God, are a part of one body. The Bible teaches the church is unified by the gospel, and this unity, which Christ secures in his person and work, this unity is under assault. There has always been tension within the church because the devil seeks to divide what Christ unites. Every letter in the New Testament notes this assault. Every letter is a circumstantial letter. There is something inside the church that is endeavoring to divide it and to dismantle, as it were, the gospel. And Paul writes, because the church is one and the gospel is pure. The church is always working from unity, not for unity. Has the historical and global church got this right every time? Well, no. But neither has it gotten it wrong every time. The church has always been a unifying presence in a peace-producing organism. It is always collectively pushing against the tyranny of isolation and division. Behavior to the contrary are the exception and not the rule. What's the problem? The church is unified in Christ Jesus. Everyone everywhere is a part of that one church who believes that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. But what is the problem? Well, listen to the following passages. I'll begin in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Ephesian. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders in Ephesus. And he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So not only do we have this assault this attack from outside, but even within the church proper, there is this assault against the unity of the church. Peter writes in 2 Peter 2, verses 1 through 3, reading verse 2, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and then finally, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulties. So we know that in Christ Jesus, he places all of us into one body where there's no longer these distinctions. We are one. But we know that that unity, that gospel is under assault. It is foolish not to believe the church is under assault. To think that we are not is foolishness. All of Satan's activities are programmed in such a way as to undo, distort, and destroy all that God has done. I cannot speak absolutely, 
I can only speak from my own experience. The virus, the confused news cycle, the government's political and polarizing response to the virus, the secularizing of race and various responses to it have all been used to make division acute. The politicizing and polarizing of every area of life intrinsically divides us. People have strong opinions as to all of it. No one is neutral. This is what they would say. No one can avoid it, no matter how hard they try. If you say something, you are tagged as this or that. If you say nothing, you are tagged as this or that. This visceral division might be unique to our own experience, but it isn't unique to the world at large. This tension and relational ugliness have always existed and will continue to exist until Jesus comes. As we will note in a moment, knowing this assault against our unity exists is one thing. How we go about addressing it is another thing altogether. Just as God has a way to resolve humanity's sin problem, so also does the devil. He is offering a solution to what is seen. And we must awaken to these two opposing approaches. God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent and the serpent's seed would crush his heel. This tension has always existed. It is seen in Cain killing Abel. It is seen in the flood narrative. It is seen at the Tower of Babel. It is seen in the life of the 12 sons of Jacob. There is always this conflict between the woman's seed and that of the serpent. Today, this is no less real. You and I might differ as to the means of how this is playing out, but the end game is an attack against the church by attacking her unity and the purity of the gospel. What is to be our response to all of this relational confusion? Folks, the gospel. The gospel is what breaks down all secularized barriers and builds us up into one new individual where Jesus becomes all in all. Only the gospel can do this, and his name is Jesus. The solution on an individual level is the regeneration of the human heart. And on a national global scale will be the soon return of Jesus. I am always praying that he comes before I have to preach a sermon. The only solution that we have is of any eternal value is Jesus Christ. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam, but you are never in both at the same time and you do not move between the two. You see why I'm addressing the Christian and not the non-Christian. This is for us as a family of families. The non-Christian has a very different approach to the problem and its solution. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The Christian has only one approach. There is one church, one body. Multiplicity of ethnicities or distinctiveness of cultures do exist, but there is only one race, and it is the human race. We share 99.9% of our DNA. There is a multiplicity of colors within the race because of our melanin, but no color is better or worse than any other color simply because of color. There is only one church. Functionally, gender distinctions do exist, economical Variations do exist, but none of these things create value or identity inside of the body of Christ. Our society, our culture will always be in turmoil and confusion because it rejects the gospel. This confusion and turmoil are uniquely theirs. The local church is a place of peace and rest, and we are ambassadors or missionaries of this message to the unbelieving world in which we live. 
This peace and rest are uniquely ours. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you... That's what we are bringing to them. As believers, we are all one in Christ, and therefore we are all of equal value and equally necessary within the body of Christ, the local church. This is the message of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And I cannot answer for every historical hiccup and sinful action by the historical church. I can only answer for what does exist and how we continue to push forward in our unity produced by the gospel. There is only one church with global, localized communities. When we pray for the persecuted church, it is because there is only one church. We are a part of their life in Vietnam, and they are a part of our life here in Waukesha County. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering because of the gospel, and those prayers are never controlled by ethnicity, gender, or status. We pray for their continued strength and perseverance for the spread of the gospel. You were very generous in the gifting during the Pentecost season for the Church of Egypt. We raised $4,000 in gifting. They will deeply appreciate that gifting. But we do that because we are one in Christ. During this season, as in all seasons, the church is under attack. So we are pressing against this division by declaring that we are all one in Christ. For those who believe the gospel, for those who believe in Jesus. The second area of assault is against the purity of the gospel. If we have learned anything from Galatians, it is the insidious nature of minimizing the person and work of Jesus and maximizing our own efforts. Did you hear what I said? Think about the book of Galatians for just a moment. And this is where we need to always be connecting the dots, always understand that there's a single story and at the center of it is Jesus. Remember that Galatians is saying that Jesus is enough in this life and in the life to come. Jesus is not only necessary, but he is enough. You have these two polarizing ideas of circumcision and of crucifixion. Circumcision is a gospel of the flesh. Crucifixion is the gospel of the spirit. Circumcision is leaning into faith in the works of the law, where crucifixion is faith in the person and work of Jesus. We are identified by his work. The one only scars you, but you're dead. The other will kill you, but you're alive. Remember how Galatians plays out. Remember in chapter 2, the apostle Paul is confirmed by, then conflicted with, Jerusalem leadership. Remember that whole Peter scenario? Well, there is this tension, and Paul is always addressing it, but he's addressing it with the gospel, because the gospel is what causes us to be one. Every letter and all of Scripture speaks to the totality of the individual. The gospel impacts everything about us. Anytime we think or act in a way that adds to, undermines, or ignores the person and work of Jesus in the answering of life's problems, we are saying, God cannot do this, but I can. Our gospel response is always, Jesus is enough. The gospel says you can't, but God can, and Jesus did. The gospel is Jesus. He defines for us and explains the gospel. It is through his person and work. He reestablishes humanity's relationship to one another and to the Father. This messaging that you can't, but God can, and Jesus did, is uniquely ours. 
It's uniquely ours as a Christian. And this, what is uniquely ours, we are to take to them. That is our response. In all of our responses to life's situations, if I, 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 I somehow commit myself to watching the news, I'm not hearing Jesus is enough. I'm not hearing any kind of gospel response in any public or secularized news cycle. Are you with me on this? And you know what happens when we submit ourselves to that narrative? We go batty. You go absolutely, unless I'm an exception, which I know I'm exceptional. But I don't think I'm an exception here. You dip your toe into that pond and the piranhas will eat you alive. No one out there is saying, you can't, but God can, and Jesus did. That messaging is uniquely ours. In our quest, and this is so important, in our quest to be good or holy or to do the right thing, we replace the gospel root, Jesus, with the gospel fruit, good works. The good is always going to be the eternal enemy of the best. What I pray you and I see is the connectedness to all that the Bible teaches. There are two sides to the gospel, but they are not equal or balanced sides. They are sequential, but not simultaneous. The Jesus seed is always and inevitably producing this gospel fruit. The two cannot be separated, but neither can they be flipped. Moreover, they are not equal. The one is causation, the other is consequence. You say, well, Pastor Brad, I'm not quite following you there. And I think to myself, well, if I say it enough, at some point you'll hear what I'm saying. Why is noting this order important? Well, because this pattern controls our response to the problem. What does the world need? Yeah, that wasn't a trick question, by the way. The world needs Jesus. That is what is uniquely ours. That's what we have to be verbally and visually communicating to the world around us. But what's the problem? Well, the problem is believing the non-Christian works from the same worldview that the Christian works from. Folks, we don't. I, I hope that's not revelatory for you. Our starting point, our approach to problem solving, and our end game are polar opposites. We are working toward a different goal. And the means in which we are employing are different. The way we see the world is filtered through the Scripture. The way the world sees the world is not filtered through the Scripture. We cannot fix society's ills by reforming behavior because no human can know the deceitful heart and no human can change a leopard's spots. Only God can and only Jesus does. If we do not protect the purity of the gospel, we are going everywhere saying to people, you know, you really can't do this. But God can and Jesus did. If we do not protect the purity of the gospel and keep it in the forefront of our thinking, we will come to believe that our problems can be fixed through power or protest, through legislation or law, through government, through the transferring and infusion of endless financial resources, and or through complete social upheaval. Our most fundamental and pressing need is only solvable by the gospel. And, and my intent is not to speak to any of those issues because I am sure we will have a multiplicity of responses in every one of those areas. I am simply telling you that as a church, as Christians, we have a singular response to life's problems, and it is Jesus. 
No amount of self-help or autosotirism, which is self-salvation, is going to fix any of our relational problems. Our response to that statement, you know, if we think, well, I can do this, our response to that statement helps clarify our own approach. If our first response is, we can do this, then we are working from a man-centered worldview. If our first response is, I can't fix this, then and only then are we beginning to approach the solution from a gospel-centered worldview. I am not addressing what your privileges and our role might be as a citizen of this nation. I am simply and directly dealing with us as a local church. We have incredible liberties as citizens of this great nation. Exercise those liberties. But this is what we are as a church, as Christians. We lead with the gospel. God can use all of this unrest, all the lies, all the polarizing, and all the lawlessness. He can use it, and he does use it. But whatever this action is, it does not make it right simply because God chooses to use it for good. We know that from the life of Job, the life of Joseph, the life of Jesus, and that of Paul. So what is our response to all of this? Our response is always going to be the gospel. The only thing that can change the human heart and the only thing that can change the brokenness of humanity is the regenerating and transforming power of Jesus Christ in the life of the individual. On a local, national, and global scale, only the return of Jesus Christ will make the crooked straight. Anytime we think otherwise and trust in secular agendas for change as the answer to humanity's problems, we have abandoned the power of the gospel. And again, I am speaking to the church. As citizens of this great nation, you should exercise yourself according to your conscience and conviction. But as a church, we believe the only solution to all of the problems that are playing out in front of us, historically, presently, and in the future, is going to be Jesus. Jesus has to change the human heart. And Jesus can and does change the human heart. See, what you and I see in the world is not the church. Do the two intersect or interact? Absolutely. But we are to bring what is uniquely ours into the situation. What do we have that the world does not have? Jesus. That is what is uniquely ours, and that is what we bring into that situation. We are not to bring what is uniquely theirs into the church. You can tease that out on your own. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And what is he going to give to them? Rest. That's what is uniquely ours. Let's bring that to them. Is this what the unbelieving world hears from us? Is this what the unbelieving world sees in us? So you and I need to be aware of the gospel. The gospel is what unites all of us. Regardless, it unites all of us who believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. We must protect our response to the problem, realizing it is Jesus. Jesus only, Jesus forever. So where do we go from here as a church? What is to be our mindset and action steps? Well, you and I need to celebrate the unity of the church and the purity of the gospel. We're one. Every church out there that is a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church is a part of this family. This one's localized right here, that we have relational responsibilities, opportunities. But all churches 
are a part of the one body if they are gospel-believing, gospel-celebrating churches. So how do we celebrate that? Well, by taking the local church and its mission seriously. How do we do that? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, three short things. First, by volunteering in its activities. Where might you plug in? Secondly, by participating in its programming. If we're doing something as a family, join us. All you have to do is show up. And then finally, gifting toward its mission. You and I are to individually and collectively carry the mission forward. The mission of the church is not the societal transformation through secular means. That's not our mission. Our mission is to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere, at all times. What do the people in our country need? Keep preaching, brother. What do the people in our state need? If our first response is anything other than Jesus, we are abandoning the gospel. How the power of the gospel plays out for you in your community will be unique to you. But if we do not lead with the gospel, the gospel will be lost. How do we protect the purity of the gospel? How do we take that idea seriously? Well, by taking the local church and its message seriously. We believe that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes our relationships before the Father and with one another so that we no longer value people based on Jew or Gentile distinctions, male or female distinctions, bond or free distinctions. We see people in Christ. Aren't you glad that's the way it is? What if we judged you based on your past, even though you've come to Jesus? And I know a lot of you, and some of you were, you know, woo. But I don't see you like that, and I've told all those people the same thing. I see you in Christ. I see you with the imputed righteousness of Jesus resting upon you. So we are genuinely brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how I see you, and I don't judge you. That judgment took place at the cross. But that's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel does. So I can treat Christians, I can treat all people as image bearers, but I can treat Christians as one in Christ, regardless as to where they find themselves. You and I individually need to wrestle with all of this. You and I might have very different responses to all of this as individuals, but as a church family, our voice is singular. We cannot put the cart before the horse in all of this. We must lead with Jesus. Fight against getting swept up with all of the hysteria and fear unfolding around you. That hysteria and fear is pushing against the unity of God's church and the purity of God's gospel. And folks, if you, if you think, well, it's going to get better before it gets worse, it's just going to keep getting worse. Are you with me on this? You understand? Utopia doesn't happen until Jesus comes. This crookedness that you and I exist in, long before this present manifestation of it, is only straight, straightable, there you go, is only correctable or straightened in the person and work of Jesus individually and then on a global scale when heaven and earth come together. This past week, my, my son, Pastor David of Fellowship Bible Church in Palmyra, wrote the following comments to his fellowship, and they echo my sentiment exactly because we are living in an awkward time. And he wrote, as I look over our church, speaking of Fellowship Bible, I heard someone bemoaning things about our congregation. Failures, missteps, oversights, failures of faith and love, sure. 
You don't have to be an astronomer to discover the moon, but you have to be pretty foolish to ignore the sun. But we often ignore the sun of God's good workings and fixate on the mournful moon of human mistakes. Here's a congregation that has come through an extraordinary season. What do I see? I see faith growing abundantly. I see people turning to Scripture with renewed zeal, recalling God's sovereignty with renewed confidence, and looking to our precious hope with renewed joy. And I see love increasing. I see people eager to care for one another, to know how so-and-so is, and whether they need help or if anyone needs help, let me know, and setting aside their views in order to make space for fellowship. I field emails and texts from people asking for ways to help. He concludes by simply saying, I'm thankful. I share this to echo his joy and gratitude over this family of families. It's a heavy study, isn't it? This assault against the unity of the church and the purity of the gospel. But there is much good taking place individually and corporately as a family of families. So how do we respond to all of this? Next week, we are looking at Galatians chapter 6. Verse 10, which says, So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to the household of faith. And we're going to look at how we can do that as a family of families. But please join with me as we stand and close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to, I trust, be reminded of what is true. The church is under assault, and the devil is seeking to divide what you have united, and he is seeking to diminish the power and purity of your good news. And we recognize that it is only your word, your son, who can bring rest and peace to chaos and turmoil. Help us, protect us from contributing to all of that. May we be at peace with even those who we disagree with. May we be supportive and encouraging. And Father, may we speak good words. Father, thank you for what the gospel has done. Thank you that we are united in Christ Jesus with everyone everywhere who claims the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. We thank you for its perseverance, for its continuance, and for its power. We thank you, Father, for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.